My heart is steadfast, O God, my heart is steadfast. I will sing and make melody. Awake, my glory. Awake, O harp and lyre. I will awake the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. For your steadfast love is great to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. Those are verses 7 through 11 of Psalm 57, which along with Psalm 56 are the psalms appointed for today, September the 13th, 2021. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being with me today. We're looking at um, the, the life still of Ahab, the wicked king of the northern kingdom who was married to Jezebel. Uh, in 1 Kings 21, the first 16 verses. Then we're beginning a study in uh, the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 1, the first 19 verses, and also in the Gospel of Matthew, the fourth chapter, the first 11 verses. So <clears throat> what we've got here in this 1 Kings passage is Naboth the Jezreelite. He's, so he's a man who lives in Jezreel, which is part of northern Israel, <clears throat> had a vineyard in Jezreel beside the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. Remember that, that the palace there was set up later, after the division of the two kingdoms, of the northern and the southern uh, tribes of Israel. And so now he set up this palace, which would have come after Naboth's family had received their inheritance. So after this, Ahab said to Naboth, Give me your vineyard, that I may have it for a vegetable garden, because it's near my house, and I'll give you a better vineyard for it, or, if it seems good to you, I'll give you its value in money. So, what he wants is for Naboth, to, who has worked, or possibly even his inheritance from his family, is this vineyard has been there for a long time. And he, the king, wants that vineyard for a vegetable garden. Now, it, it takes no account of what this might mean to Naboth, that it is, it is his family's inheritance. So, essentially what's happening here is Ahab wants to take it by eminent domain to turn it into a vegetable garden. But the problem is if you give somebody the, the value of the vineyard and money, it's not the same. That that value has more to do uh, with, with its value as his inheritance, something that he takes pride in because it's been in his family for generations and generations, it's more than just a vineyard. It, it, is, it is who he is. It, it bespeaks of the man who owns it. But Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. No, I'm not going to do that. It has intrinsic and extrinsic value to me. And Ahab went into his house, vexed and sullen, because when Naboth the Jezreelite had said to him, for he had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay down on his bed and turned away his face and would eat no food. Is the king a two-year-old child? I mean, I've had my children do similar stupid things. But that's his response. But, but did you hear that the response that Naboth gives is not, I won't sell you my vineyard. It's, I won't give you the inheritance of my fathers. This thing has different value to him than just as a vineyard. So Jezebel comes and says to the king, What's, Why is your spirit so vexed that you eat no food, little fella? And he said to her, Because I spoke to Naboth the Jezreelite, and said to him, Give me your vineyard for money, 
or else if it please you, I'll give you another vineyard for it. And he answered, I will not give you my vineyard. No, he didn't. No, he didn't. He said, I will not give you the inheritance of my father. It's a totally different statement. And Jezebel, it wouldn't have mattered because Jezebel is just wicked. So it wouldn't have mattered that he got it right. But that's not what he said. And he reversed the order of what he had offered. And then Jezebel's wife said to him, Do you now govern Israel? Arise and eat bread and let your heart be cheerful. I'll give you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. So she wrote letters in, in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal. So she's acting on behalf of the king and has permission to do this thing. And she sent the letters to the elders and the neighbors who lived with Naboth in his city. And she wrote in the letters, Proclaim a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people, and set two worthless men opposite him, and then let them bring a charge against him, saying, You've cursed God and the king. They Then take him out and stone him to death. And so the men of the city, the elders and the leaders who lived in the city, did as Jezebel had sent word to them. Now, Jezebel sent word to them, but not in her name. She sent it in the name of the king. So it, it, it looks like Ahab, is the one who had done this, but it's actually, without knowing it, they did exactly what Scripture says. They did as Jezebel had sent word to them. So, as it's written in the letters that she sent them, they proclaimed a fast, set him at the head of the people. Two worthless men came in and sat opposite. Worthless men brought a charge against Naboth in the presence of the people, saying, Naboth cursed God and the king. They took him outside the city and stoned him to death with stones. Then they sent to Jezebel, saying, Naboth has been stoned, he's dead. As soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, she said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money, for Naboth is not alive but dead. And as soon as Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, he arose to go down to the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite to take possession of it. Which would imply that at some level that he had no heirs of his own at this point in time. Naboth, that is. So we see the abuse of power here. And in America, even today, we live with the abuse of power. And I don't mean that, that as a political statement because both are the same. Everything has been changed in America since 9-11, which was 20 years ago, two days ago, right? So the, we've changed and we've become a security state. And we have, we have become a people whose everything we do is under suspicion and under scrutiny by the government. And we need to wake up to that reality. We live in a place where abuse of power is, is more possible today than at any time in, in, in history because of the surveillance state. And it's important that we understand that. We understand the times that we're living in. It's important for us to know that. And I know that's a controversial statement. But as I said, it's not a political statement. It's a statement of, of what's going on in America. And it, it just if you doubt it, then look at the stuff that Edward Snowden has to say and others like that. I'm not a conspiracy theorist. This is real. <laughs> You're just not allowed the freedom any longer that you used to have. And and it is there's a there's a potential for great abuse of power. There's already been a lot of abuse of power, but but there's potential for even greater abuses of power. It, the opposite of that is in the gospel lesson today, Jesus was led by the Holy Spirit after the baptism of John into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So the Spirit led him there. 
to be tempted of the devil. And then he fasted 40 days and 40 nights. And Matthew tells us he was hungry. Well, certainly that would be the case. And the tempter came and said to him, If you're the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. He's presuming on two things. He, he's, he's saying, If you're the Son of God, which is to say, prove it, then command these stones to become loaves of bread. If you're the Son of God, if that's who you really are, then you have the power to do this thing. You have the power to command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, it's written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. He's not going to do it. He's not going to presume upon sonship, and he's not going to prove his sonship and his power to the devil. Jesus just simply says no. And, and you know what? It's funny, the, the way this ends, and it's not in, not in Matthew's gospel, but, but in another gospel, what we're told at the end of all these things, I'm going to jump to the conclusion before we get there, but it's important that I do that, is, is that the devil left him at the end of these three temptations and then waited for a more opportune time. Well, what was the more opportune time? If you're the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Sounds a lot like what happens in John 6 when the people get upset because Jesus fed them the day before but won't feed them again today. What sign will you give us? Well, essentially, they could say, if you're the Son of God, if you say you are who you say you are, then, then do what Moses did and give us food in the desert. It's the same thing. It's the same temptation. It's to prove who he is after he's already proven who he is. And there's constantly looking for a sign and proof rather than believing. I hope that doesn't describe you, but it certainly describes a lot of people that God always has to prove himself. I mean, I'm so thankful for what he did with Will, but I also know that the doctors who participated in this, and we'll call it a miracle, won't take the next step and say that he is God. And it's simply because he's always being put to the test every time there's a case like Will's. And they don't usually turn out that way. Well, that's what makes it a miracle. And they know that it was faith that we always held that it would be there. But, but are we constantly asking Jesus to prove himself again and again and again? But this is the same temptation that's posed again in, in John 6. So the second thing is, is that, okay, he took him to the holy city, to Jerusalem, set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you're the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it's written, he'll command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone, Jesus said to him. Again, it's written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Do you hear that? Do you hear what he's saying here? If you're the Son of God, throw yourself down from the temple. You don't have anything to worry about if you do that. Does it sound at all like those who taunted him on the cross? If you're really the Son of God, then come down from that cross. I mean, these temptations repeat themselves again and again and again. And he's constantly being asked to prove himself whenever he appears in the temple and give the authority by which he does these things, it's the same temptation. And as Jesus said to him, again, it's written, you don't put your Lord your God to the test, sorry. Again, the devil took him away to a very high mountain, showed him all the kings of the world and their glory. And he said to them, all these I give you, if you'll fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, begone, Satan, for it's written, you'll worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. That sounds, <laughs> that sounds like John 6 again, because at the end of the, the, the previous day, whenever they had, he had fed the 5,000, they wanted to take him and make him king, but he refused to do it. He went on. 
He was offered a kingship on their terms. He was offered a kingship again on Palm Sunday when he comes in, but only on their terms. That's the reason that less than a week later they're seen crucified. Same people. It, it, it's constant. It, these temptations just recycle in different form all through Jesus' life. And these three temptations are going to be the same kinds of things that are common in his life, but then also there are certain temptations, and I don't know what they are in your life, they're common to us all the time. We're tempted the same way over and over. Just because you pass the test today in the form that it was given to you doesn't mean you're going to pass the test the next day. It, it will be presented in a different form, a little more attractive form than the form that it came to you the first time. Or you're going to be vulnerable in a different way, as Jesus was on the cross. It's, that's the reason that he refused the wine-soaked sponge. No, I need to have my faculties about me. I need to be in control. But, but power, Jesus could have used his power to do every single one of these things, but he said no to the use and abuse of power. It would have been an abusive use of power to command stones to become bread. It's a power that he possesses, but it would have been an abuse of that power to satisfy his own needs. If the Father had commanded it, then it would have been perfectly fine for him to do it, but the Father didn't command him to do that. He trusted the Father even in his weaknesses, even in his weakness for needing food, even in his weakness for um, relief on that cross when his anger could have gotten the better of him and he could have come down from that cross. He had the power to do it, but he didn't use the power to do it because there was something more important at stake here, and that was the salvation of mankind. In this uh, epistle lesson from 1 Corinthians today, what we see is Paul beginning to speak into the Corinthians, and he gets right to the heart of the matter in a big hurry. He says, To the church of God that's in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. And so he's, what he's doing is linking the Corinthian church with all the other churches that confess Jesus Christ. And saying that, that, that he's writing to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, who are called to be saints, together with all those in every place, call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. And he, he's right at the outset. He's doing something that's going to be clear in just a second. And that, he, that is, he is saying that everything begins and ends with Jesus. Everything begins and ends with your confession of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to say, grace to you and peace from our Lord, from our God, <laughs> and our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given to you in Christ Jesus. See, here he's just he's going to beat the drum. Right? Then in every way you were enriched in him, Christ, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, as 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 he poured out his spirit on you, and, and it became visible representation of his spirit in them. So that you're not lacking in any gift. All the gifts are there. Everything you need for ministry is there among you, the Corinthian church. As you await for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltness in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, God is faithful, by whom we were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. I mean, already in these very few verses... He has mentioned Christ Jesus or the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, one, two, three, four, 
five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten times. There's a point to this letter. <laughs> and that is that everything is about Jesus. They appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And listen to the unity Paul calls them to. There's four different, or five different ways, four different ways that he says it five, really. That all of you agree, I appeal to you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, that you be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. I mean, it, it, he can't appeal any more strongly than that, right? For it's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there's quarreling among you, my brothers. And, and just quarreling, it, it's, it's not just quarreling, it's more than that. What I mean is that each of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? And by extension, was Apollos crucified for you? Was Cephas crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say they were baptized in my name. In other words, don't take pride in the hands that were laid upon you. Take pride in the one who poured his spirit in you through those hands. It's him, and only him that matters. And then he goes on to say, I did baptize the household of Stephanas. Beyond that, I don't remember whether I baptized anybody else. Christ didn't send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of power. In other words, it's not the hands that are put on you at baptism. It's also not the one who preached it. It's the message itself, the cross of Christ, that has power. Not me, Paul. Whatever power I have comes from him directly from him and only from him. It's not about me. I'm not the celebrity preacher in whose name you have life. Stop looking at me. He says, for the word of cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it's written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discerning of the discerning. I will thwart. It's important that we understand where the power comes from. It's equally important what we do with that power and how we treat the power that's been given to us as followers of Jesus Christ. We need to be those who humbly understand all of those things.